Hello and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host Tom Masters and we have returning as our guest today Dr. David Schechter, one of the pioneers of mind-body medicine. And today I understand, gentlemen, that we're going to have a little role reversal. Is that right, David? That's right. So I'm going to turn the moderation over to Dr. Schechter very quickly, but briefly, he's a family, family practice doctor in Los Angeles area, Culver City, who is family practice sports medicine, receives most of his practices chronic pain, which is, which is his um, greatest part of his practice. But he's been one of the pioneers in looking at the mind-body syndrome in medicine. He does a great job. He's one of my mentors. And we're going to reverse the roles today. And I'm actually going to try to listen, which my wife would tell you is not my strongest point. And so I'm going to turn over the narration to Dr. Schechter, who's going to be interviewing me about my new book. Thank you, David. Well, David, I was excited when I heard that your new book came out. And um, I think there's such a need for this, for this uh, book in terms of helping both patients and physicians to figure out what, what role does spine surgery have in their care. Can you tell us a little bit about the writing of this book? What happened in 2006, I was asked to give a talk at North American Spine Society in Austin, Texas. And I was asked to talk about the decision-making in spine surgery. And what happened, a grid evolved that, organized, that put my thinking on a grid in a way that allowed me to present it very clearly. And it takes a given patient situation and takes two variables. One is the state of the nervous system and the other one is the anatomy. So the book is called, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take control with your surgeon's advice. I'm not against spine surgery, but I'm against spine surgery when you can't see the problem. My number one goal in writing this book is that there's a tremendous amount of surgery to be done on normal spines and it doesn't work. And that's if I accomplish nothing else in this life, slowing down this juggernaut of aggressive spine surgery on normal spines is a huge mission for me. That was the original starting point. So starting with the concept of a normal spine, how is either the patient or their primary care physician to know that they have a normal spine? What would be some indicators? I divided the anatomy up into two sections. One is type one, which is a structural problem. Type two is non-structural. In a type one structural problems, you have a piece of abnormal anatomy, like a bone spur, some type of instability. Then you have symptoms that match, that actually match the lesion. So to be defined as structural, you have to have a bone spur with a matching arm pain or leg pain. If the pain's on the other side, for instance, that will be non-structural. The symptoms has to be specific. For instance, back pain is very non-specific. So by definition, that is non-structural. If you have an unstable spine, where it slides back and forth with bending and bending backwards and forwards, then that would be considered structural. What is not structural is degenerative disc disease. You, you and I both know this, but there's a tremendous amount of data that shows that disc degeneration is normal as you age. It has distinctly been shown to not be a source of pain. And right now we're up over $10 billion a year of spine surgery for degenerative disc disease. It's rather perverse. So if a patient has leg pain that's felt to be coming from the back, at what point do you think spine surgery should be considered? 
So that's a, so that situation we have a bone spur with matching symptoms. Spine surgery is an option. Whereas if you can't see the problem, spine surgery is not an option. So the second set of variables is the state of the nervous system. So type A was somebody who's calm, coping with life reasonably well. There's always stress, of course. And type B is when the nervous the nervous system is what I call hypersensitized or stressed, and your body chemistry is off. Your nerve conduction is doubled. You sense pain more. You don't cope with it as well. The data shows if you operate in the presence of chronic pain, untreated chronic pain, you can actually induce or worsen the pain 40 to 60% of the time. And that's with a perfectly appropriate procedure. So if you have a bone spur with matching symptoms and you're type A, relatively calm, I don't necessarily wait that long to do the surgery because it works pretty well. Now, if you had a major financial loss or family loss or some new stress, and remember that bone spur might have been there for a long time, but the symptoms are new, often what happened, what has changed are the family circumstances. So we now do a prehab process where we actually calm down the nervous system in every patient every time that has a stressed out nervous system. We found a significant number of patients, even surgical lesions, the pain went away in a cancer of their surgery. So if you have a stressed out nervous system and you have a bone spur that needs surgery, we really try to wait six or eight weeks before we do the surgery, but it's an option. So I was gonna ask, how long does the prehab process go, uh, go on for and what are the key elements of it? Well, the, key, the, the process, I try to get everybody to do 12 weeks before we do any elective surgery. Obviously there's emergencies that are different. If it's a major spinal deformity, which is also discussed in the book, why I prehab people for one or two years before the surgery. There's a complication rate of over 60%. Half of those are severe major complications, including blindness, paralysis, multiple surgeries, et cetera. And it's not uncommon for people to walk into a surgeon's office, have a major spinal deformity operation recommended on the first visit. And there's so many factors that determine a good outcome. So by going through the prehab process, which includes sleep, stress management, calming down the nervous system, medication adjustment, life outlook, just anger forgiveness, physical conditioning, nutrition, you know, obviously, you and I have talked about this, that the Back in Control book is a primary care wellness book. And, you know, to solve chronic pain, you have to treat every aspect simultaneously. But the key issue is by using a process, like for some of I'd love to be in practice in the same town as you, because let's say Tom needed surgery and he was going through some big loss. I would have him see you for three to six months and just go through the steps that you go through with all of your patients. And we just had the best results. Had very few surgical failures once you started doing this prehab process about seven years ago. So do you think that the percentage of complications and the percentage of failed surgeries is just not widely known by surgeons or it's not widely known by physicians in general or is it sort of just ignored? All three. There's a, there's a paper out of Baltimore published in 2014 that shows only 10% of orthopedic neurosurgeons, spine surgeons, are acknowledging the known risk factors for poor outcomes, 10%. And we've known this as medical school, that if you're anxious, depressed, catastrophizing, long-term disability, et cetera, there's lots of things that we know have bad outcomes. And it's the real deal. People don't do well if their chronic pain is not treated. So these are known risk factors, the documented, less than 10% of surgeons are actually acknowledging those risk factors before they do the surgery. 
I, I know I'm not the interviewer, but just I'll ask you your perspective on that <laughs> as far as, I mean, you're, you're a primary care physician dealing with surgeons all the time. And I do happen in Los Angeles, you know, is, is like other major centers, there's lots of spine surgery being done. I mean, what's your perspective on it? I feel like if I know the patient well and they're coming to see me, either for the belief that there's a mind-body aspect to their problem or just as, as in my role as a sports medicine primary care physician, I feel like I have some control and we can do things like the mind-body the mind -body approach. We can even, if we have to do something like an epidural to buy some time, all of these things, you know, time is a key healer, right. whether it's because the patient gains insight or they just just time takes care of things. Right. And so sometimes just stalling things and slowing things down is helpful. Right. And um, if I have control and I feel more comfortable, once they get to a surgeon, especially if they self-refer to a surgeon that I didn't kind of okay, it's more challenging because then they have the credibility of the surgeon or the impressive office that he has or the, or the facility that he works at or whatever. And then you know, you're trying to overcome that. But I always tell people, slow down the process. There's very few people, and I think you'd agree with this, who need to rush to spine surgery. Right. And rushing often leads to bad judgment in many things in life, whether it right. be uh, relationships or spine surgery or other things. Right. So would you say that there, um, let's say you're talking about someone, and I don't want to be too technical for the patients, but we might have some prof health professionals listening as well. But let's say you're talking about someone with sciatica, and instead of a bone spur, they have a, a very large herniated disc, you know, let's say 10 millimeters, 12 millimeters. Right. And the neurological findings seem to correspond to this. So it seems more like a pattern that would be consistent with a structural process, although maybe they have a type T personality, a, a, a stress-prone personality, as I, as I call it. Um, if there are neurological changes, if they begin to develop some weakness in the foot or the toes or these sorts of things that we see with an L5 or an S1 lesion. What are you doing with those people differently than other spine surgeons? Well, I was very specific in the book about this. So if there's a neurological complaint, I say, look, this is between you and the surgeon at that point. In other words, I don't, everybody's different with neurological complaints as far as the rep, as far as the speed of onset, duration, et cetera, the severity of the deficit. Versus some people have a complete foot drop that's just dead and surgery's not gonna help. So the bottom line, the book is for elective spine surgery, which is usually pain. So let's say you have a ruptured L45 disc, which causes pain down the side of the leg. With a soft disc rupture, the first two or three weeks are severe, but the soft disc often resolves. Most of these ruptured discs get better without surgery. Now, if you can't tolerate the pain and have the disc taken out, that's reasonable also. There's studies that show that actually taking the disc out earlier doesn't improve the overall chances of resolving a soft disc rupture, but it is faster, no question about it. I had my own back surgery 30 years ago, and I lasted about six weeks and just went berserk, could not do it anymore. So yeah, that operation works well. If you have a stressed nervous system, even just doing the simple exercises like you talked about earlier, like the Expressive writing, a little bit better sleep, medication management. Try to calm things down first before surgery helps. But when you have an acute soft disc rupture, it's hard to deal with. What happened in my practice, which blew me away, I sort of put myself out of business, is that normally if a patient walks into a doctor's office, a surgeon's office, there's between a 10 to 15, 20% chance of actually having an operation recommended. In many surgeons now, it's up to 40, 50%. And this has become very regressive as far as the number of 
procedures being recommended, it turned out that the rehab became so powerful that even the surgical lesions started getting better without surgery. And these are the ones with bone spurs only, not a soft disc rupture. These were not going to improve with time like a soft disc, disc rupture can. I had over 120 patients with severe spinal stenosis, leg pain, inability to walk very well. That came to the surgeries over about 12 weeks because the pain disappeared. Now, I didn't expect that. So my surgical conversion rate on elective surgery, again, based on pain, not neurological deficits, dropped under 5%. So I literally put myself out of business. So let's go on to the category of people with actually just low back pain okay. rather than low back with leg pain or leg pain primarily. Should any of those people ever get spine surgery? Essentially, no. Essentially, though, the only exception to that would be sometimes people have a very unstable segment where you bend forwards and backwards and the vertebrae slip on each other. Even then, it's still do the prehab for at least 10 to 12 weeks. But non-specific back pain is hard to define. You can't really match it up with, let's say a given disc is the problem. We don't have any diagnostic test that tells us which disc that might be. And the success rate for a spine fusion for back pain is about 25%. That's it. Chapter seven of my book documents, or chapter eight of my book documents, the data behind fusions for back pain. There's not one research paper in 50 years that documents that back surgery should be done for back pain, not one. That, certainly that category, the people with back pain only or back pain primarily is a category where I'm beginning to make inroads in the community with some of the surgeons who know that I like to work with chronic back pain patients Right. Who don't need surgery. And, you know, the good ones at least are not operating on these back pain only or back pain primarily cases. And we're getting great results with the mind body approach. Um, so it sounds like you're, you concur with that, with the exception of maybe a small percentage of people with severe spondylolisthesis or unstable right. spines. Right. Which is a different category. But, um, but, but, you know, those people. So part of the prehab criteria is if you come in with leg pain and back pain, and first of all, say, look, Back surgery doesn't help back pain or neck pain. It just doesn't help it. Part of the prehab process, we want the back pain to decrease about 50% or more before we do the surgery for the leg pain. And there's a few times that the leg pain has been so compelling, I've done the surgery anyway. And guess what? The back pain got way worse. Very discouraging. So David, you know, you're, you're pointing out again that a combination of common sense approaches holistic medicine, if you will, and time is a successful approach to reducing and minimizing unnecessary back surgery. Right. That's really what you've been advocating for years, uh, I think quite effectively in treating this way. Well, but also, as you know, there's everything in my, in both books is simply documented medical practices. And like I said, on the other part of the conversation, doctors are ignoring the known practices that actually help calm down the nervous system and, and solve pain. So you and I and you know, a few others in our group do understand that chronic pain is actually solvable, not to be managed. And most of the medical profession, for some reason, has missed the neuroscience research that tells us how to do this. And then we start doing surgeries that have no data to support it. You know, I quit my practice in December because I was seeing three to five patients every week with really tough things done to their spines that were disabling them. And I ran across a kid who's in his 30s who was paralyzed with a 5-1 fusion for a spondylo that should not have needed surgery. 
paralyzed. He's 32 years old. I quit. I actually quit mentally on the spot. It took me another six months to wind down my practice. But my feeling is I've seen a spine surgery for many years. I felt compelled to get out and pursue this project full-time. So I didn't really retire. But I switched gears to public speaking, these type of podcasts, writing more books, teaching, online programs, whatever it takes to get this message out there. The spine surgery flat out right now is dangerous. You can only fix it if you can see it. You shouldn't do any elective spine surgery until you spend at least 12 weeks doing the things that help calm you down and, and optimize your outcomes. I used to tease my fellows and go, look, when's the last time you saw a surgical failure in my clinic? And what happened at the prehab, many people got better without the surgery. And the ones that did the surgery had less pain, better rehab, better mindset, good expectations. And we just had the best time in clinic with our customer patients. We didn't have the failures that I used to have. So the answer for patients and the answer for doctors is to read, do you really need spine surgery? And to really take the messages to heart, understand the grid about uh, the sympathetic nervous system, the arousal of the nervous system, and the risks to operating on those kind of individuals, and to learn the prehab or the doc program to uh, apply where appropriate in their offices and at home. Yeah, no, it's been, it's, the book is intended, um, we self-published a book. My wife walked in one day and said, look, you're going to cut this book down by 30%. I'm going, what? <laughs> and the bottom line is we did. We made it very concise. So literally in the first 90 pages, you know what you have to know to make the decision. The middle part of the book is the background on, you know, why the book is important. And the final two appendices, which are long, really go into the specific diagnosis about what makes a specific diagnosis, structural versus non-structural. And so it's a reference book that people can, can actually get through very, very quickly and make a good decision. So I, I'm pretty, I'm very excited about it. And a lot of my friends have been using the grid in their, you know, sort of as a decision making process for a long time. I was, I'm excited to get that grid in, get the grid into print and allow people to use it um, as they see fit. So I'm pretty excited about it. Have you heard from any primary care residency programs that would like you to speak there? Because it sounds like you really need to get out to the physicians uh, as well as the patients with this work. Yeah, no, I'm working with some healthcare systems. And again, my target is physical therapy, chiropractic, the naturopaths, and, prim and, and um, primary care. The people that are in the trenches with the patients and can help calm them down and establish a relationship is a big deal. But what the book does, it creates accountability of the surgeon, both to the practitioners and to the patient. The surgeon decides, hey, you need surgery. Well, now you can go, why? What's the reason and, and explain it. And so it gives you the tools to actually have a decent conversation with your surgeon, say why you do or don't need the operation. Well, it just seems like a very helpful guideline for everyone and a chance to explore the subject as deeply as, as you need to, depending on your background and your, the field that you're in. So David, thank you for being the interviewer. Are you, are you done with me now? <laughs> I don't know how much time we have left. It's hard when on this end, I don't have- uh, a, We have a couple of minutes. We have like three minutes left. Countdown clock. You can ask me any final questions. Okay, good, good. Um, so how are we going to change medicine? How are we going to change? This is a bigger question, a broader question, although it certainly relates to your book. But how are we going to change physician practice, both the surgical and the non-surgical level? What's going to happen? How are we going to impact this? I think the number one thing is changing the fee schedule. 
I said this for a long time, is that I think that the fee schedule for doctors talking to patients, particularly primary care, should be tripled or quadrupled. Mm-hmm. Number one. Second of all, we need to quit paying for procedures that don't work. And again, I told you about this paper that documents that every procedure we do for chronic back pain and knee pain has been documented to be ineffective, period. Every one of them. And you and I both know is that if you have phantom limb pain, you can't do more surgery on a limb that isn't there. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, that phantom limb pain phenomenon can, can occur in any part of the body. And we're just throwing risky and expensive procedures at patients from every direction that we can. So I think increasing the fee schedule for doctors to be able to take the time to talk to patients is number one. And number two, quit paying for procedures that don't work. And I, we talk about, you know, different capitated payment plans, et cetera, et cetera. We've watched it. You and I have watched this for 30 years. That's not going to work. I've also, my wife keeps telling me not to do this, but even from a political standpoint, you and I both know if we quit paying for procedures that did work and pay for doctors to talk to their patients, that there, you probably save at least 40% of the healthcare costs that we're incurring right now. There's plenty of money in the system, but we're spending it on procedures that don't work. Procedures are tremendously expensive and tremendously lucrative, not just for physicians, but for hospitals and for surgery centers and all of this stuff. Because right. fees, fees are often triple what the physician is paid to do the procedure for the facility itself. Right. And uh, there's a tremendous uh, perverse incentive in this regard to operate and to do procedures rather than, as you pointed out, to rehabilitate somebody, to talk to them, to listen to them. And, uh, you, you know, you've spoken to the converted here in terms of someone who has a family medicine uh, specialty right. that primary care doctors need to be paid more and that this would lead to a healthier population and a lower cost healthcare system. Well, as you know, listening is a proven treatment modality, number one. Number two, I mean, how do you actually solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is? And I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how random these surgical recommendations are. I had one of my fellows call me from back east that he was asked to go in and sign up a surgery, patient for surgery for a L5S1 fusion for a spondylolisthesis. The guy had tendonitis. He had bilateral iliotibial band tendonitis. The surgeon never saw the patient. Um, I have one doctor's wife who was fused from her neck to her pelvis on the first visit, completely normal spine. She had two months of muscular back pain after weightlifting. And she ended up housebound, hydrosarcotic, and she went psychotic. I mean, it's not good stuff. These are the most extreme examples imaginable, but I, you know, it's incredible it's to common. run across these examples. I mean, to me, they're astonishing. Right. And that, you, that people pay for this, that, that this is not, these doctors are not drummed out of the profession. It's, it's hard to understand with this, with this type of uh, care. But I, I do think that for the medicine to change, is going to have to come from the public. Right now, the business of medicine does not have any particular interest in changing things. And so it's going to come from the public. And I don't know what you think, but I mean, my sense is the public is getting some sense that things aren't quite right right now. I don't know. What do you think? I think there's definitely a move in this direction. I don't know if it's as powerful or strong enough as as you and I would like it to be right now. Um, Sometimes the public wants a change but doesn't know what change it wants and right. wants to be educated and that's what I know you're doing you're going out there and speaking and doing the podcast and obviously this important book all of these things are going to contribute and we're all trying to do our part either seeing patients or writing or both uh, it's just a challenge there aren't enough of us advocating right. we're hoping that 
I'm trying to speak to, and I think you're doing this as well, speak to some of the larger healthcare carriers, uh, right. Cigna, Aetna, United Healthcare, these sorts of things, because then, then whatever effect that you can have is multiplied dramatically. Right. So those types of things may have an impact. Uh, and uh, maybe some of the large medical schools and medical centers, I mean, there's plenty of data here. It's not like, as you said before to me, the data's on our side, not on the other side. Right. And, no, uh, med mainstream medicine needs to be ashamed of itself. They're the ones that should be on the defensive because what they're doing has no data. It just right. doesn't. I just have to tell you one story. It just came up because you reminded me of working with the healthcare system. So I won't mention the name of the system at this point, but I'm working with a large healthcare system. And the head pain psychologist had a patient who was a gang member, basically a skinhead type situation. And he was involved in a gang incident where he lost his leg you know, from a shotgun accident. He developed phantom limb pain, high-dose narcotics, really angry, tore up the system for a couple of years. You know, high-dose medications, demanding, aggressive, really an unhappy, unpleasant patient. He came into the pain center, and they gave him my book, The Back of Control, a Surgeon's Roman About a Chronic Pain. They started going through the process of the writing relaxation tools and going through the rest of the process, including forgiveness. And in three months, his phantom limb pain disappeared, which I honestly have seen a few times, but don't really expect that, but his phantom leg, leg pain disappeared. He came off all narcotics. He is going back to school to become a drug and rehab counselor. That's, that's, in, that's in three months. So I mean, just think of the cost to the healthcare system just with that one patient. Yeah, the, the, as we know in healthcare, five or 10% of the patients drive 80% of the costs. And right. of course, a few of those you know, have terrible cancer and need a heart transplant and those types of things. But in terms of the chronic pain and uh, unex medically unexplained disorders, that's a big piece of this. Right. And you know, I'm, I've been looking for some corporate inroads as well to try to have an impact for those companies that self-insure and things. It's, right. it's, it's an uphill road, but I think we have the, the data behind us. We have the evidence behind us. We're continuing to get more evidence. You know, obviously there's a few phys physician colleagues of ours who are publishing more and more research. So that's, that's, a, that's a benefit as well. Right. And it's not that you and I don't want the people who need spine surgery to get it. We just don't believe that a very small number of people actually need it. Right. And that there's more that can be done for the individuals with back pain, leg pain, neck pain, arm pain, et cetera, uh, prior to operating on them. So that's really why you wrote this book. And I'm so glad it's, it's out there. Do you really need spine surgery? And take control with a spine surgeon's advice. It's a great title. And uh, I'm gonna definitely recommend it for patients who perhaps need to hear another surgeon's voice. They hear my voice, but there might be a time where they need to hear it from a surgeon. Similarly, I've you know, found your book back in control to be helpful for patients who have been misinformed by surgeons and might need to hear from an orthopedic spine surgeon uh, from his, his voice on that. So you know, we all work together, uh, sometimes virtually or distantly and other times in the office, but that's the, that's the goal is to get people better and to make sure that the people get the treatment that they need. If your problem is a mind-body disorder, surgery is the worst thing for you. Yep, that it really and holds. And yep. tumor, mind-body treatment would be the inappropriate treatment right off the bat. You need to get right. that tumor taken care of. So right. you're just looking for the right treatment for the right patient. And right. that's the logic behind it and always has been really. Well, David, thanks for interviewing me. I think you should do your, do you do, are you doing a podcast right now or not? I'm not, but I'm just glad to help you out here today <laughs> interview you for this new book.
All right. Well, I appreciate this very much. That was a lot of fun. So it will get in touch pretty soon. So anyway, thank you very much. You're, you're, you're welcome. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. David Schechter, for playing the role of interviewer on this podcast today and giving us the primary care physician's perspective on Dr. David Hanscom's new book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? I'm your host, Tom Masters, and reminding you to visit us next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And remember to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.